Thank you for tuning into this webinar, Measuring What Matters in Your 401k Plan for Recruitment, Retention, and Reward. This webinar is hosted by AGH University and presented by AGH Employer Solutions. AGH Employer Solutions is a team of professionals that helps employers, business owners, and human resource professionals hire, compensate, manage, engage, train, and retain one of their most critical resources, their talent. Today's speaker is Brad Bechtel. Brad leads the Employee Benefit Services team at AGH. EBS serves clients nationwide and is one of the region's largest providers of retirement plan record-keeping services for daily valuation plans and employee stock ownership plans. Brad has served as a consultant to numerous Fortune 500 corporations in the areas of investment management and fiduciary due diligence. He also provides search and selection due diligence consulting services for companies seeking new investment and record-keeping providers for their qualified plans. Today's webinar highlights the link between plan design optimization and increased benefits to owners, highly compensated employees, and the rank and file. After today, you'll understand the link between plan design and increased benefits, how various plan contribution designs can be used to benefit different groups within your workforce, and differentiate between various plan designs which can meet the changing needs of the employer and workforce. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. Good morning. I am Brad Bechtel, uh, Vice President of AGH Employer Solutions. Thanks for taking time uh, to be with us today. I, I do appreciate uh, every minute you do give to us. Uh, start off with, uh, have you ever felt like uh, maybe your, your company's 401k plan is just not really living up to your expectations? Um, you know, I, I find that I, when I speak with employers, they, they tell me that uh, you know, their owners, their highly compensated employees are just not maximizing their savings uh, within the plan. You know, it's been my experience that many employers today um, have maybe what, what I would call as a one-size-fits-all type of uh, a plan design. And so what we're going to do today is I'm going to spend the next uh, 45 minutes or so discussing how you might be able to look at the data within your plan and use that to help optimize your plan design so that you can ensure that your 401k plan is working, you know, as hard for your employees uh, as well as it is for your highly paid or owner groups. When we look back through uh, history and the innovation and the development of 401k plans, uh, one of the things we see is the associated strict IRS and, and DOL guidelines that all these plans have to operate under. And, and one of the common themes, or, or maybe you might even say cardinal tenets, within these plans um, is that 401k plans must benefit uh, both the rank and file employees um, so that the owners and highly paid employees can also benefit. In fact, failure uh, to, to benefit rank and file employees actually will restrict the benefits of their owners and highly paid employees within an organization. Plans that operate uh, or even designed in a fashion that, that fails to embrace, I guess, this, this critical understanding within plans uh, will often result in those owners or highly paid employees receiving refunds uh, of, their, of their contributions at year end or maybe you know, being limited in some amount as to the uh, amount of the dollars they can put in the plan. To better understand uh, the key concepts and, and how they relate to optimal plan designs uh, and ongoing administration, you have to begin by looking at the underlying data and understanding what we need to be measuring within a plan. Now, some plan sponsors, uh, when I talk to them, say, you know, we get way too much information about what's happening in the retirement plan. Others, uh, you know, I will say, we just don't get enough. We just don't get enough. Since every plan sponsor is different, uh, I suspect that 
you know, there may be no real middle ground on this. But what I would say is having access to and then understanding the key underlying data and what it's measuring within your plan is critical to understand um, how to go about putting together uh, an optimal plan design for your organization. The purpose here today is to look at these important indicators and see how we can use them to reach our, our plan's goals and to help our employees and our owners save for a financially secure retirement. During today's webinar, we'll talk about getting to know your participants and understanding their behavior. And we'll spend quite a bit of time talking about behavior. We'll also take a look at some of the key measures that you can use uh, to get to understand your participant base. And then I'll describe some best practices uh, that our retirement industry experts are now using and have developed. You know, communicating effectively is always a topic that deserves uh, attention. Uh, since it's a key driver in the retirement plan interest and uh, participation. We'll also give you some pointers on how to operate in, a, in a, uh, your plan in a time when your budgets are probably staying the same or maybe even decreasing. Let's start off uh, with our first polling question. Today's polling question is, how many of you are in charge of or part of a committee that's responsible for your firm's retirement plan? Uh, the options are there on your screen. Go ahead and key those in. I'll give you a little bit of time to, to respond. Uh, if you're not yet done, I'll give you a couple more seconds. Just a reminder, do need you to be sure if you want the CPE credits, you do need to respond. So um, those of you that are wanting it, please do respond. Okay, we're going to close out the poll. Um, looks like uh, about half of you are just highly interested in the topic, with about a third of you that uh, are actually part of a committee that's responsible um, you know, for your plan with uh, just under 20% actually being the one that is in charge. So good. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I think this will be a, a very uh, applicable uh, webinar for you. So how participants behave with respect to their retirement savings, uh, it, I find very fascinating. But it, it's very important uh, information that can help plan sponsors tailor their actions and their communications in order to help their employees get the most out of their retirement. First, let's take a look, though, at the disconnect uh, that happens between participants' confidence um, in their retirement preparations and then their actions. According to the uh, 2014 Retirement uh, Confidence Survey from the Employee Benefits Research Institute, 18% of workers surveyed said they were you know, confident about their financial security in retirement, 18%. Seven, or excuse me, 37% were somewhat confident. However, when we compare that, only 64% said that they and their spouse were currently saving for retirement. And, and maybe amazingly, worse yet, nearly 36% of those workers reported having less than $1,000 um, you know, in, in savings. Uh, so there's, there's a significant disconnect. Only 44% said they'd even actually tried to calculate how much money they would need to have saved up by retirement uh, in order to live comfortably. So there's, there's clearly a disconnect here. Um, these numbers seem to indicate that what people feel about their retirement um, isn't necessarily consistent with reality. So what are maybe some of the remo uh, emotional responses that are, that are driving some of this? Well, 
if we turn to behavioral finance, uh, the research shows this, that employees suffer from a number of things, uh, inertia uh, in making their decisions based upon their emotional impulses. Uh, another example might be uh, procrastination. People tend to think that whatever they're, you know, they're, they're going to do later is not nearly as important as what they're doing right now. Uh, inertia, we talked about that. People tend to do what they're doing right now. Information overload uh, and paralysis. Um, you know, more options do affect behavior. Some researchers wanted to actually evaluate this this particular concept, and so what they did is is they they set up a table of Godiva chocolates um, in a grocery store, and on the first day they offered uh, six different chocolates to the shoppers and asked those that visited the table to make a choice from the six. As, as the shoppers left the store, the people were asked a series of questions to determine how satisfied they were with their choices. Most of the group that were satisfied uh, were, were satisfied with their selections. Um, they also gave each person the option of receiving another box of chocolate or a $5 bill. More than half chose the chocolate. So the, the, the experiment was repeated the next day, but this time people had 30 chocolates to choose from. So remember, the, the first one was you know, 10, now, now, we're up to, now we're up to 30. Again, shoppers were interviewed as they left the store. Researchers found that most were not nearly as satisfied with the choices that they had from the day before. They also offered the group um, the choice of another box of chocolates um, or, or $5. This time, only 12% chose more chocolates. The conclusion that the study came to was that with more choices, individuals become more overwhelmed. I, you know, I might note that, you know, we all probably relate to this. Today's 24-hour news cycle, uh, the intranet, intranet, our, our Twitters, Facebooks, uh, Vines, blogs, um, Instagrams, there's, there's just a tremendous amount of information and overload of that information, and, and it does. I, I do think it does overwhelm us. Future willpower was also something that folks looked at. People tend to think that they're going to have more discipline in the future than they necessarily do today. I think if we just want to consider, for example, diets or even uh, smoking sensation or any one of the number of, of other type of programs that are out there, I'm, I'm always going to start my diet tomorrow. I'm, I'm going to stop smoking tomorrow. I'm going to, you know, whatever I'm going to do, I'm going to stop eating so much pizza tomorrow, whatever it might be. But it's always tomorrow. It doesn't tend to be today. Irrational investment decision-making, you know, rather than using analytical tools, uh, we find that, you know, people base their decisions on ir uh, irrational biases, arbitrary rules of thumb, maybe familiarity with something, uh, or overconfidence, and fear of loss. Now, fear of loss is kind of interesting because what, what the study found was that people actually feel the pain of loss roughly twice as much as they feel the pleasure of a gain. Uh, I, I think that's very interesting, and you know, certainly, you know, coming out of 2008 and, and some of the the market losses that we saw there, we probably are familiar, we, you know, ourselves with that, but with our employees. You know, the good news is with all of these is that we can encourage uh, good behavior by implementing some strategies and plan design and investment simplification and employee education, and we'll talk about those shortly. Now, I'm going to mention this later in the presentation, but I also wanted to bring it up here. There's a, a, a noted financial uh, professional that I'm sure you all have heard of, Dave Ramsey. 
And you know, he's done a lot of uh, seminars and TVs and books and videos, and, and it, the list goes on. One of the things that he says um, about behavioral finance is that the proper handling of finance is 80% behavior and 20% knowledge. And, and I think that's really important. We need to realize that you know, we can educate to our, to our heart's desire, but behavior is what's really driving what's going on. So people have a few obstacles to overcome regarding their behavioral wiring. On the investment side of the world, um, some of the poor decisions are caused by human emotions include uh, poor diversification, um, or as a friend of mine says, poor diversification. Participants have poor diversification when it comes to their equity exposure. Younger workers tend to invest too conservatively by not investing in enough equities, while our older uh, counterparts tend to invest too aggressively and hold too much equities in their portfolio. Their decisions are, are inverted, if you will. Inertia takes over, and once a portfolio is established, 68% of those studied then never rebalance their portfolio at all. If a participant could rebalance his or her portfolio and their asset classes four to eight times per year, the study found that there was a much greater chance of beating the S&P 500 index. However, only 12% actually rebalance their portfolio um, the optimal number of four to eight times. Fund choice is another consideration. Uh, in, in the study, it, it covered a five-year period. Participants who invested in six to 15 funds significantly outperformed the S&P 500 index, yet the average number of funds used by most 401k participants was just a little over four. Asset allocation. Um, you know, over both the three and a five-year periods that were studied in this, investors who included asset allocation funds in their portfolios were significantly more likely to beat the S&P 500 than those that did not. However, just 34% of the investor population actually even used these funds. Fortunately, what we're seeing today is target date funds are becoming much more popular, so we're probably going to see this, this continue to change and evolve. Now, target dates are also evolving. You know, a number of fund companies have recently launched tailored or custom-designed target date funds that, that adapt, if you will, to the participants' unique financial situation, taking into consideration more than just their time horizon to, retire, to retirement. They're taking into consideration things like their deferral rates, their account balances, maybe the employer's contributions, or other plans that the employer may even have. An obvious place to start uh, and, and look at is some of the variables that affect participation um, in retirement plans. So as you do this, I think we need to keep in mind that the statistics that were provided to us here recently from the Employee Benefit Research Institutes, they've got a large database of 401k plans. Now, as you might imagine, participation increased with a worker's family you know, income. So among those with family incomes below $10,000, only 6.8% participated. However, if we look at families at $75,000 or more, 67% participated. Education also played a role, with only 14.9% of those without high school diplomas participated, compared to almost 62% of workers who had graduate degrees participated in the plans. Gender, while right now women slightly are outpacing the participation rates, at 56% compared to 53% for men. I will tell you, this has kind of gone back and forth. 
Uh, I think last year it was even, the year before that, uh, men slightly outpaced women. So it, it's going kind of back and forth. The one thing that I noticed in this is that if you take into consideration uh, maybe some differentials in where pay scales are, uh, what we might find is that actually females are probably uh, better savers than, than males. Um, race also played a, a role in participation. Um, in the study, it found that Caucasians were much more likely to participate in plans at just about 45%, followed by an, the other category, uh, which, as I dug into it, determined that it, it's a combination of a lot of different uh, races, but it was predominantly more Asian in nature. Um, the Asian culture there, or other category, was at about 38%. Blacks were at about 39%, and Hispanics at uh, 26.5%. So let's, let's dig into this a little bit more. Uh, I, I think it's pretty interesting. So the same study and the same analysis um, found that the earnings level of Hispanic workers were slightly less uh, and their participation rates were slightly less than the white and black workers in participating in plans. The gap between those percentages of black and white uh, participants that existed overall though narrows when compared against the earnings categories. Now, on the other hand, the gap between Hispanics and whites was evidenced across all of the earnings gaps or earnings groups, excuse me. So these results really show and I think indicate how important it is to take ethnicity into account when looking at your plan's demographic and how those participation rates uh, can be so crucial in, in measuring and determining your benchmarks. It also highlights the need for an effective employee education process that includes communicating in the ethnic language for your non-English speaking employees. Building trust with your employees by communicating in their ethnic language is critical to the success of your participation and your overall deferral rates. Now, I, I, I dug into this a little bit more because I was curious what the dis differences really were between the other or the Asian culture versus the Hispanic culture. One of the things I was able to determine was it really got back to uh, adoption of a secondary language, that being English. The Asian population, according to a Pew Research study, uh, here just left this last year, found that the Asian culture was significantly more likely to adopt a second language than the Hispanic population. And so I think it, it would be plausible to uh, assume that probably the adoption of that second language built some degree of trust, which resulted in some higher deferral rates and, and allocation of dollars into these plans. Let's take a look at um, maybe some best practices with uh, participation rates. So uh, immediate eligibility to participate is, is becoming the norm um, in retirement plans today. According to the Prop Sharing Council of America's annual survey regarding eligibility, 64% of plans permit immediate eligibility in their 401k plans. 79% of the companies surveyed also allowed uh, participation within three months of employment. And then and additionally, there was a loosening of the servicing requirements, and they found that about 38.6% uh, of the plans actually had no minimum age requirement. So what we're finding here is that plan sponsors are seeing a payoff 
in the higher participation rates that, are res that result from allowing and encouraging new employees to enroll in the plan upon being, hire being hired is really worth more and, uh, than the added cost of enrolling those few individuals who may end up uh, leaving the company at a later date. Maybe more importantly, the payoff result in an increased non-highly compensated employee deferral rates, which thus allowed your owners and your key employees to save more and retain more in the plan. Automatic enrollment continues to increase in popularity. The same study found that about 50% of 401k plans have implemented automatic enrollment, and this upward trend really continues and is really being led by larger employers, but we're finding you know, medium and small employers also adapting and adopting. Plan sponsors are finding that targeted communication is also more successful in having an impact than generic broad pieces. So for example, in an employee population that might be largely white collar or technical workers, um, information about potential retirement savings and how that could be, in, and the growth of that and how that might impact their future uh, retirement benefits is probably going to be better than some general, basic, generic communication about asset allocation. Now, written material, that's tough. I mean, let's face it, I, I think we'd all agree that by and large, employees just simply don't read everything we give them. Some of you are probably chuckling and say they don't read anything I give them. Um, you know, one of the things to consider is meetings in which attendance is required. Um, and I know that can be a drain within the company, but it, it certainly does allow the uh, employer to create a message to the employees that's unified and it creates a little bit of a buzz or a hype um, so that everybody's hearing the same message and it gets everybody on the, uh, on the same track. Group and one-on-one -on -one meetings are very effective and provide a significant boost in your participation and deferral rates. Lastly, simplicity. We all love simplicity. Uh, and that carries over to the use of our enrollment forms. I'm sure we've all seen the three-page or four-page uh, enrollment forms that really are just intimidating. Considering looking at your enrollment forms and trying to figure out how you can pair those back to make them as simple and, and, and non-intimidating as possible is going to increase your participation. So let's take a little bit closer look here at automatic enrollment. As we just saw, the Profit Sharing Council of America's latest survey found that about 50% of plans had already implemented automatic enrollments uh, for participants. And that's up about 3% from last year. What's probably more important to note is that just seven years ago, that percentage was down around 10%. So over seven years, there's been um, roughly a 40% increase of plans uh, utilizing automatic enrollment. Larger plans, as I said earlier, have certainly led this, but the numbers are rising for smaller plans as well. And just as a related piece of information, I want to point out that making you know, nearly all parts of your retirement plan automatic is a clear trend. More than 65% of plans already have implemented a provision in which participant contributions are automatically increased. These are, these are known as really step-up deferral provisions. It was only a few years ago that most plans used stable value funds as their default options. You know, today we find that nearly three-quarters of the plans today are using target dates as their default funds. The point here is, is that when it comes to optimizing your 401k plan, measuring what matters is critical. Look closely at what your plan's participation rates are and what sort of things they might have an impact. 
one of the things that I have said, and I use this as a mantra, I call it my three M's. I, I think as you look at your plans, you need to be sure that what you're doing is making your plan design meaningful to your employees. So make it meaningful. Second, make it simple. Overcomplication really tends to turn off employees. It's too complicated. I don't understand it. I don't want to do it. I think Warren Buffett even said one time, if you don't get it, don't do it. Thirdly, make it automatic. Again, remember, Ramsey said 80% is behavior. 20% you know, is really education or knowledge. So adopt the understanding that you've got to embrace your employee's behavior. Making it automatic really does that. We all want our employees to participate in the retirement plan, but you know, once that's established, then you want them to contribute at an amount that's appropriate to actually help them reach their financially secure retirement. The majority of plans that have automatic enrollments have really set them at 3% as their default contribution. That's fairly normal. However, many experts today are really saying that's probably not ideal for retirement. But it's at least a starting point. So helping your employees get used to deferring and putting money in, I think that's a good idea. 40% of employers, though, are now using automatic deferral rates above 3%. You know, as a general rule, we, we tend to encourage 6%. Participation rates overall are roughly 10% higher um, when, with plans using automatic enrollment. Uh, plans that are using automatic enrollment have an overall participation rate of roughly 85% compared to 75% of those not using it. Highly compensated employees had an average contribution rate of 6.6% um, as compared to non-highly compensated employees with an average deferral of 5.3, which, by the way, is, is roughly the same as it was in 2005. And if we look back at the period from 1994 through 2014, one of the things that we see is actually average deferral rates for non-highly compensated employees has really varied uh, very little from 5.0 to 5.6%. Trends that you know, really present uh, and represent best practices and in increasing contribution rates include automatic enrollment, uh, again, maybe in the 4 to 6% of compensation, immediately upon employment. I really recommend not waiting until your employees have been with you for three to six months. By that point in time, they frankly have gotten used to their paycheck, and you know, implementing an automatic enrollment point at that, at, at that juncture is, is really uh, very ineffective. Now, this next point I'm going to say, I always get a lot of pushback on, but I still think it's a valid point. I, I really recommend you know, sweeping your existing employees into this automatic enrollment. Now, I hear immediately, oh my gosh, we don't want to do that. The employees are going to be so mad. I, I guess what I would tell you is there is zero correlation between an employee's tenure and their financial acumen. So if that, truth, if that proves to be very true, and I believe it is, then you know, when you look at your existing employees, They've been with you for a very long time. Why would you believe it's important enough to get the new employees started, but the ones that have been with you for the longest, you, you, you decide to ignore and let them, let them go and let them be where they're at? I think that's something to really consider. 
Efforts to boost employee deferrals via step-up programs are really gaining in popularity. Uh, as I noted earlier, about 65% of the plans uh, in the Profit-Sharing Council of America's latest survey now have provisions with automatic escalation of contribution rates. While there is an infinite number of ways to allocate matching contribution, there's two very common ways uh, that were highlighted within the study. The first one is 50 cents uh, per dollar of contribution up to 6% of compensation. So this effectively creates a 3% match if the employee defers the full 6%. There was about a 38% adoption rate of that. The other common one, at 38% as well, um, was a dollar-for-dollar dollar contribution up to some threshold of 4 5 or 6%. Now, these strategies typically result in a plan's overall average, you know, to, to be roughly in the 5 to 6, you know, percent. So maybe any guesses as to why that is? Well, again, let's turn back to investor psychology. Investor psychology tells us that employees are going to defer at a level that's consistent with their employer match. So in other words, if your match caps out at 6%, then your employees are by and large going to stop deferring at that 6%. That's where all the free money stops. One way to consider this or to look at it differently might be to stretch your match. Now, stretching your match is, is kind of an interesting concept. And by the way, it's, it's a practice we've used here at our firm for quite a number of years. You take your matching contribution, your budget, and you allocate it in a manner that stretches it over a higher cap percentage of compensation. So let me give you an example. You know, um, use a formula that causes your employees to defer up to 10 or 12 percent before they get their full match. So for example, if you're doing a 50 cents to the dollar up to 6 percent, you know, instead do 30 percent up to 10 or 25 up to 12 of compensation. Now, the mathematicians among the group here are all probably realizing that all these formulas actually have a similar budgetary cost to the employer. What they do is they allow your employees to maximize their benefits by chasing the match. We also saw earlier that service requirements for entering a retirement plan are becoming more relaxed. 64% of plans in the latest uh, PSCA study said that they had no service requirements for participating in the plan, and 49% provided immediate eligibility for the matching contribution. The same survey found that about 37% of surveyed plans provided for immediate vesting of the employer contributions, and that's continuing an upward trend. All right, so we're ready for uh, polling question number two. So the question is, um, has your company utilized um, any of these best practices to increase your company's participation and deferral rates. Please go ahead and enter those. And just as a reminder, so that you all can uh, get your credits, please be sure to answer. Thank you. All right. So it uh, looks like about a little over half of the group um, has indicated that they are using faster and less restrictive eligibility provisions. I think that's right on course with what we're seeing with the study, uh, followed up by 46% using the automatic enrollment. I think that's a great idea. 33% uh, are using mandatory enrollment and education meetings, with 31% uh, doing the step up and deferrals or the strat, uh, matching, uh, stretching the match. Excuse me. So very good. Very good. We're getting a few questions. I, I think what I'll try to do is hold those off to the to the end, and then I'll, I'll uh, uh, having the time uh, left over, we'll be happy to go through and address those.
So the number of investment choices uh, available to participants has actually been staying steady uh, over the past six years in that roughly 18 to 19 funds on average. Now, those of you with target date funds are probably going, oh my, we've got way more than that. Not, target date funds are a, a particular type of asset class, and, and in the industry, we really only count them as one fund. So even though you might have eight or nine or ten, just we, we look at those as just one, uh, one fund. Now, I thought this was uh, an interesting study. The Columbia University did a study, and, and it was the uh, study of choice of overload. And they found that initially, uh, most participants actually preferred a wider range of product options and fund options. However, they found that over time, the abundance of choice actually became a burden to the employee. As the number of investment options increased, the study found that the probability of the employee deciding actually to disengage and not participate, not participate in the plan even went up. In fact, the burden was even quantified this way, that for every 10 investment options in a plan, there was a decrease of around 2% of the participant's participation in the plan. So if we do a little bit of extrapolation here, um, if, if we have plans that have 30 or 40 investment options, that would mean that we should see a roughly 6 to 8% drop in the employee participation in the plan. Now, I, I will tell you here, just really within the um, last year or so, I've begun seeing plans that have you know, upwards of 60 and 70 different fund options. And I, you know, I don't know if, if the same extrapolation works there, but I, I think the results are the same. You're going to see a significant drop in participation just because of the uh, overload. The percentage of plan assets invested in equities uh, has continued to remain about the same, roughly about 50% over the last several years. There has been a shift uh, away from stable value funds, I mentioned that earlier, to target date funds uh, and similar type of lifestyle funds. Nearly two-thirds of plans in the uh, Prop Sharing Council of America's survey are now utilizing target date funds, and in fact, many of these target date funds are the default investment option. Uh, for some years, it was common for companies to match employee contributions with shares of their company stock. Uh, that practice is, is virtually uh, it's eliminated or declining to the point. It was about 4.8% uh, of the survey, so it's uh, clearly a, a, a downward trend. Only a small portion uh, of 401k plan participants uh, pay attention to their accounts. Um, that may or may not be a shock to some of you. Um, interestingly, though, uh, only a tiny minority, uh, Vanguard did a study where it said just around 3%, 2.7 specifically, uh, of the participants were active traders in their 401k uh, account. Now, this was even a study that went back and included uh, some of the 08, um, 10, 11 uh, type of markets. So I, I guess what I pull out of that is, you know, even despite uh, market volatility, um, the behavioral inertia continued to rule. Whatever I'm doing is, is what I'm going to continue to do. There wasn't, uh, there wasn't much action there. <clears throat> Equities continue to dominate, making up again about half of participants' uh, uh, plan assets. Other assets frequently used, uh, domestic equity funds at about 25%. Target retirement dates at about 17% stable value funds at about 8%, actively managed bond funds about 7%, and indexed 
domestic equity funds at 10%. Now, the, the, the thing I think you pull out of this is the clear trend is towards more and more assets going to target uh, date funds. Now, even though they're only about 17% uh, is actually in target dates, what I would tell you is the increase of dollars going there is significant. In fact, just over last year, there was a 67% increase in dollars uh, going into target date funds over the prior year. Just over 75% of plans now offer target date funds, and this trend continues to be uh, upward. Automatic rebalancing is also becoming more popular, although unused. Survey conducted by Aon and Associates uh, indicated that roughly 75% of plans offer automatic rebalancing. However, very few people, again, are really using these. The same study found that many employers um, are offering one-on-one -on -one investment education and did find that very helpful uh, in the employee engagement and satisfaction within the plan. In mid-2014, Vanguard reported that the average account balance um, within their population was about $101,650. Now, Vanguard re releases these reports in June of every year, and, and so we're, we, we have the 14 numbers. I won't have the 15 numbers for a while. Um, we talked earlier about kind of some of the frightening results that came out of the 2014 Retirement Confidence Survey that was done by the Employee Benefit Research Institute. Many of those in that, in that survey, many of the, the uh, workers uh, reported that they had virtually no savings for investments, and 36% reported that they had less than $1,000. Moreover, 68% of the household incomes of less than $35,000 had less than $1,000. So it caused me to look at, so where are we at for the, the folks that are in retirement today versus those that will go into retirement in the near future? Well, AARP did a recent uh, public policy statement. Uh, it was entitled, What are the Retirement Prospects of Our Middle Class Americans? And what they found was that future retirees are less likely to have a current, or uh, less likely to be successful than current retirees um, in their in their current standard of living. The median income replacement rates um, were approximately 80% for current retirees compared to 37% for future retirees. So, our, the the folks that are still working have about 7% less um, of of that. Uh, uh, retirement income and those replacement rates. The thing that was really important to me, or I think very highlighted in me, is it even got worse though when we pulled in medical expenses. So, if we if we add in the effects of medical expenses and what's going on there, the well-being of our future retirees decreases from 73 percent to 55 percent. So there's a problem. There's there's a real significant problem, and we need to start addressing it. Obviously, raising participation and contribution rates um, is, is something that nearly every plan sponsor wants to achieve. So what are some of the approaches that uh, can, can help you in this? Well, again, overarching on this, I've always said make it simple, make it meaningful, and make it automatic. Some of the communication pieces there include those, you know, targeted communications, meaningful communications. Mandatory, you know, in, in employee meetings. I was good to see in the sur I was happy to see in the survey that a lot of folks are doing that. One-on-one, -on -one, investment education and advice, simplification. Again, make it simple. Make it automatic. Automatic enrollment, 
stretching the dollars, chasing that match, target date funds, um, relaxing vesting schedules, and lastly, immediate eligibility. You know, I might also add that if, if your company's financial situation, now clearly, you know, we go back to 08, it, it didn't allow, but we're starting to see companies and balance sheets and income statements looking more healthy today. So if your company's financial situation permits, you might even want to consider a profit-sharing contribution. Now, you know, such, contrib such contributions certainly don't need to be large. Trust me, employees will really appreciate any amount that they get. Be sure to remind uh, your you know, new employees that your plan uh, can accept, if your document allows, rollovers from your previous employer. Um, it's, it's a good way to make it easier for your new employees to kind of keep everything together. It boosts the assets that were within your plan, and it might even result in lower marginal costs for your uh, investments. Another thing to consider is you know, reminding terminated employees uh, that if you know, they have enough money in the dollar and in the plan, and again, your plan document permits this, they can leave some of their account balances behind. This not only helps, you know, maybe some of the concerns that your employee, you know, might have, but it also will retain some assets in the plan. Uh, it, it, it would be poor for me to not mention, I will tell you this particular issue has some other concerns. Um, certainly, you know, number one would be, uh, you know, employees retain, you know, balances within your plan after they've left. That means you still have to find them. Um, tracking down lost participants is certainly not fun. If you are a plan that you know has has not gone over that 100 to 100 employee uh, level, uh, you also can encounter audits if you begin retaining balances uh, from terminated employees. If your account goes over that 100 to 120 range, you'll find that you're going to be required to do audits. So um, I, I think that particular point has uh, needs to be implemented with a measure of concern. Plan sponsors also need to think about the data they receive as, as a tool and, and use it to allow them and their participants to gain a more comprehensive picture of their, of their financial situation and use it as a trigger that might even allow plan sponsors to play a more active role in guiding the participants uh, towards a more you know, financial footing. I like to define success, and, and I always talk to my clients about how they define success. Now, some say, well, it, it means you know maximizing the owners and the highly compensated employees' contributions and balances in the plan. Um, others sometimes say, well, it really means that we're able to recruit and, and retain and reward our employees. Um, you know, others might say, well, you know, we're getting larger account balances. Our firm measures the success of a plan by um, increasing the, the plan participant's average income uh, ratio. So the income replacement ratio is simply defined as the annual income at retirement divided by the annual income while working. And an employee's ultimate goal, if you will, with a retirement plan is simply to reduce, or excuse me, to replace their working income with their retirement income. And that's what this measures. Not the market value of the assets in their accounts, um, not the return on their investments, um, those, those factors are all very important and they're, they're critical to a successful retirement outcome, but being able to actually measure how much you're able to replace of your working income I think is the end solution. Informing participants in easy to read formatted statements about the status of their 401k, their savings, their loans uh, from other sources is also a great way to help your employees control their finances. 
working with investment professionals that can help you with your employees to help them aggregate and coalesce all of that information into simple, easy-to-use tools is also a very successful approach. Data can serve as an action trigger. So let me give you an example. You know, a high loan balance with a plan might trigger a targeted communication explaining the pros and cons of borrowing from a retirement plan. Or, in another example, low, you know, low enrollment among younger employees might trigger a targeted message about the benefits of starting early and what that might be, how that might affect their savings rates at retirement. Even before all of that occurs, though, I believe that you know an alert a human resources professional could even affect the outcome within their plan. So, for example, you know a loan or a hardship withdrawal um, might trigger a one-on-one -on -one financial counseling with that person. You know, in such cases, the company and the participant might be able to avoid some you know negative data points within this. This is activity that, if it occurs, will never show up on any reports from your record keeper, but still will have a dramatically positive impact on the overall numbers within the plan. We're ready for polling question number three. So for 2015, um, your company's retirement communication strategies include the following. All right, very good. So 66% said that they are um, increasing plan participation and contributions, followed by 42% increasing the appreciation within their plan, and 21% uh, looking at increasing investment diversification. So very good. All right. So let's take a look at communicating effectively. One of the things that we clearly see in, in surveys that we've looked at um, is that internet and intranet is being used the most heavily with 90% of plans, uh, targeted mailings at 79%, you know, followed on down, 69% uh, are using online or mobile applications, uh, email correspondence at 65, and kind of on down from there. When we look at initiatives for 2015 and 2016, um, we look at an Aon Hewitt survey that asked respondents to identify communication uh, initiatives that they were very likely to undertake in the next year. A general appreciation of the plan uh, was at the top at 52%, followed by increasing their plan participation at 63%, uh, diversification, um, fund utilization at 54%. The one thing I might, I might note is that I personally think that looking at the retirement income adequacy and raising that uh, would be a, a very, very uh, positive. 32% were looking at the overall plan cost. I will tell you that number used to be significantly higher years ago. I think plan sponsors today are frankly getting tired of talking about plan costs. What they're really looking at now is trying to figure out, um, is my plan working and how do I get it working better? Experience suggests that the best practices for you know, communicating with your employees, including taking advantage of today's technology, such as the intranet or your internet, uh, other technologies of getting information to them. But it has to be tailored uh, to your audience to be successful and not generic. MassMutual recently did a white paper um, related to targeted communication, and it really gave us um, some great practical guidance. It, it noted that the key to improving participant savings and investment behavior through targeted, personally relevant communications, automatic features like auto-enrollment provide opportunities for these types of actions. So, for example, 
employees who were uh, automatically enrolled but had never really changed their default rate um, might get a targeted message that would say, here are the benefits of increasing your deferral rates. Plans offering communication with retirement income projections have also found increased participation rates in statistically significant increments. Additional research has also suggested that workshops that are focused on you know, the issues that participants bring with them to the meetings has had twice as much benefit. Things that you might want to consider is addressing things like Social Security. Um, as you have older workers uh, and your, your workers are getting closer to retirement, how, how do I understand Social Security and what are, the, uh, what are all the things I have to do to get into it? Pointing out research, uh, it also suggests that information overload will, will paralyze us. We, again, we've talked about that. We know how that works. The, the report suggested that targeted communication used to reduce the decision-making complexities for t participants was optimal. In addition, you know, offering uh, recommended courses of actions tend to draw the participants into accepting those solutions because it didn't require additional data gathering or decision-making efforts. Personalized communication also played an emotional role in their decisions because it, it forced them to believe that the employer understood them and knew them and cared about them. Finally, the report noted that, obviously, and we know this, not all individuals uh, respond the same way to communication styles. Some take in uh, and internalize written communications, while others you know, prefer the spoken word. Best practices for targeted communications uh, in, involve making them relevant in today's terms, making sure they, ref they reflect the age group that they're being addressed, and show personalized savings growth and, again, income retirement ratios. Including financial wellness programs as part of your education process can also be a positive result for your employee engagement. Examples include things like Hello Wallet. Um, we've also talked about things uh, like financial planning, council, uh, credit counseling, uh, maybe even talking about Social Security. I mentioned that earlier, long-term care, things along those lines. I mentioned Hello Wallet. It's, it's owned and operated by Morning Starts, an online service. Um, we've seen a number of employers uh, look into and adopt this. It is an online service that allows uh, a financial wellness program for the employees. I, I will note that 25% of employers surveyed said that they were very likely to consider in 2015 financial wellness programs to assist their employees on their budgeting expenditures and increasing their savings rates. All right, we're ready for polling question number four. So what forms of employee communications um, have you found effective? Uh, please go ahead and, and answer these questions. About 45% are using group meetings. 36% uh, are using one-on-one. -on -one. Um, not too surprising, 5% uh, written materials. I think we, uh, you probably were all chuckling when I said nobody reads anything. So, uh, and 14% online resources. So very good. So uh, as I'm sure you probably already concluded, you know, most of the best practices we've covered today are probably available to you as a plan sponsor, you know, at, at probably no additional cost or maybe some slight increase. And in some cases, they're probably already available. I'm just guessing your employees don't even know they exist. You know, taking a look at simple enrollment forms, you know, cutting them down, not being a two-page or three-page, making them easier, less restrictive uh, eligibility, consider immediate or three-month, uh, maybe even consider getting rid of your age requirement, automatic enrollment, and, and as much as I know I get pushback on this, but maybe even sweeping in your existing employees. Step-up programs on your match, considering getting them up as, as high as you can, 
stretching your match in the use of uh, targeted date funds. You might want to discuss with your record keeper, you know, what other education uh, or communication services might be available uh, or maybe even already included in uh, your administration fees. Certainly, you know, using default allocations within default funds, automatic rebalancing, uh, targeted communications online or written, uh, you know, can you offer and can you can you push forward mandatory meetings with your employees and do your do your financial providers um, provide one-on-one -on -one investor uh, advice services? So as I as I conclude today, um, I want to highlight. I think there's six steps that we can use to optimize our plan designs. And the first one is again back to my first slide and where I began is really understanding that for owners and highly compensated employees to maximize the benefits. Um, your rank and file also have to benefit in the plan. So helping your rank and file employees have a successful retirement outlook is directly correlated and connected to your owners and highly compensated. It's also benefiting. Two, take a closer look at the demographics of your particular employee population. Study the behavior of your plan's participants and maybe even ask your record keeper if they can provide you with some type of uh, you know, executive report uh, with all that important information in it. Three, use the data that's available to you to gather information you know, uh, and, about your participants and present it to them and help them understand it as well. Use the data to change your plan and your participant behavior. Four, take in the initiative to consider automatic enrollment, step up deferral strategies, stretching your match, automatic rebalancing, and the use of target date funds. Five, communicate effectively using you know, multimedia approach. Again, not everybody reacts the same way to messages. Targeted communications, one-on-one -on -one meetings, and mandatory meetings. And lastly, do what you can with what you have. I do realize that budgets are tight. Um, I think you'll find that you can do a lot of these uh, types of, of uh, solutions within the, the budget that you have. Lastly, I'll, I'll close with a little bit of where I started. You know, remember, uh, Dave Ramsey, you know, said that. You know, the proper handling of finances is 80% behavior and 20% knowledge. I think all too often we spend more time and more effort on education and less on behavior. I'm sure every one of you probably relates to all the enrollment meetings that you do. Um, I, I, I think Mr. Ramsey might be right in this case. And, and you know, uh, creating plans that um, push us to automatic enrollment, automatic deferrals, automatic default funds, automatic escalations goes to addressing that 80%. So um, closing, make it meaningful, make it simple, and uh, make it automatic. So thank you all very much. I appreciate you listening today. So Brad, we had a few questions come in while you were presenting. Um, the first one that I saw was, if industry norm is 19 funds and too much choice is bad, what is a good number of fund options? Yeah, I think that's a great question. You know, what what I have found, and I, I think what the study is really indicating is, uh, and again, realizing that target date funds or lifestyle funds, so that's the, you know, conservative, moderate, aggressive uh, allocation type funds, if you consider those as one option, and I think that's important to understand that, um, you know, we're really finding that somewhere in that uh, 19 to 20 funds uh, is is optimal. Uh, what it does, I think, from your investment professional's standpoint is it gives them um, enough room to be able to include 
the, the proper amount of investment uh, sectors, you know, large cap, large growth, uh, mid cap, small caps, international, fixed income, all of those different types of options, uh, but it doesn't uh, create an excessive number uh, of funds. So. The next question we had come in, um, I have a limited time, live in a limited budget and time. How should I go about targeting participants with communications relevant to their concerns? I can't produce a message for each type of audience demographic. Yeah, you know, one of the things that we're seeing today is that uh, increasingly the record-keeping systems are becoming more and more robust. And what, what I would suggest, and I think this, again, within a limited budget, would be to, to speak with your record keeper and find out um, can they identify certain demographic groups. Maybe it's uh, younger employees. Maybe it's younger low savers. Maybe it's older employees that are too aggressive. Um, maybe it's employees within your population that are only using one fund, and, and maybe that's the money market fund. Um, I suspect that, and, and, and I know just in, in, in my conversations with, with record keepers, the systems are becoming more robust today, and they have the ability to identify those populations within your plan. You then can create a, a message, not only in many cases online, so when they log in, you might be able to put some of those on their statements, but you certainly could do um, you know, intra-company uh, distributions based upon those. So again, it's, it's, I think it's back down to identifying those populations. Use your record keeper to do that.